Greetings, fellow gamers. When we started Rolling for Change, I knew that there was something here. I knew there was transformation in gaming. I knew that there was ways we could consciously create our games to elicit the possibility of change. And I also knew that the way that we uh, address gaming and address ourselves within game could have the potential to reflect back to us the changes we can make in ourselves or the changes that we needed to make in ourselves or even more importantly, the unconscious things that come up from the darkness when we play games. What I was not prepared for is the rabbit hole that we have gone down in the past few months on Rolling for Change. There is so much depth here. There are so many great people working in the direction of finding those elements that make games a tool for change, a change agent, a therapist, if you will. You know, in, in guided imagery and music, we often talk about music being the co-therapist. Well, with Rolling for Change, I think we are talking about games being the co-therapist for our experience when we play. And the beautiful thing about this is that there are so many amazing people that are writing and building and working to make this thing come alive, to bring something out of the darkness that's never been brought to light. And that is that games have the potential to create personal change. Games have all this amazing potential personally and in our society as a whole. And no one that I've talked to is more the epitome of this idea than Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman, who came to talk to us about her experience with LARPing, with gaming, with psychology. Just her wealth of understanding, knowledge, and experience has opened the door so much wider, and I hope that you will stick around and listen to all of this. This is this is some amazing stuff, uh, and it's the kind of stuff that I always wanted to make sure that Rolling for Change addressed. So, get excited, because this is a great discussion, and it's going to take us as far down the rabbit hole as we can go in an hour and a half. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to offer this episode, and... Uh, I look forward to your feedback. Here is myself, Brian Peace, Josue Cardona, and the wonderful and amazing Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman. Welcome to Rolling for Change, a podcast about the transformational nature of gaming. My name is Woody Harris. Harris? Harris. My name is Woody Harris, and I am joined by my two trickster god co-hosts, Brian Peace and Josue Cardona. Hi, hi. Hello. Why, 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 weren't, why weren't our names in past tense like yours? I don't. Was my name in ha- past tense? Harris? I didn't. Like was, in my mind, it was a T, not a D. Oh, I was like E-D at the end. <laughs> well, you know, present tense, harasses. Uh, Har- okay. Harasses. Harasses. There we go. Will the we, English teacher please confirm? <laughs> <laughs> we also have present with us Sarah Lynn Bowman, who is a game scholar, designer, teacher, uh, advocate for role-playing games and LARPs. Uh, we are so excited to have you here, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. 
I, I feel like you've been in my periphery for a while now. Like I've seen articles and they had your name on them. And I'm like, I got to check out who that person is. And <laughs> it just took me a while to get around to you. And I apologize for that. But having read your work now, I'm like, I should have read you a long time ago. <laughs> it happens. I mean, there's all these little little clusters of areas on the internet where people exist and they have their own little, you know, discourse communities, right? So, you know, they don't overlap. It can be difficult sometimes to find work that's out there. It can be, especially in in this idea of gaming being therapeutic and potential for growth and, and that sort of thing. That's that's just not a large group of people altogether. It, I think there's more momentum for it in the video games uh, area, uh, but we're doing so many interesting things in analog games that really deserve a lot of attention, I think. Yes. Um, so maybe uh, we could start by just talking a little bit about why you do what you do and what exactly it is you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a loaded question, I know, but I, I don't know how to summarize all there the work so that many, I've seen. There are so many uh, answers to that. There's like metaphysical answers. There's yeah, <laughs> professional answers. Um, why are you here? Why do I exist? <laughs> um, well, um, I guess the 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 big picture for me is that you know um, I have skills and a brain, and I have <laughs> access to to people that use uh, this modality. And I have been very deeply interested in their motivations, in the potential for it uh, to change lives, because I've seen it change lives, you know, thousands of times. Um, and so, you know, my purpose is to, in a lot of ways, amplify the voices of people who have had transformative experiences and also to make sense of how we can translate those experiences into professional spheres, um, as well as support communities of play that are using uh, this modality and making safer spaces. So it's, it kind of bridges a lot of different territory. Uh, I uh, have, I, I'm, trained in communication and the humanities, um, which are both very interdisciplinary, uh, but I have a strong uh, interest in psychology and sociology and lots of other fields. So um, I kind of draw from, from a lot of different areas um, and I, I publish uh, both academic works and um, popular works. And I also uh, have helped organize uh, conferences and uh, design games and help help run games um, and and worked on safety teams. So I kind of have have done a lot of different 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 things in these areas. That's exactly why we're excited to have you here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting because I recently I was talking to some friends and we were kind of talking about the idea of building a role playing game. This is before I contacted you. And we had talked about how to incorporate uh, trans transpersonal and humanistic concepts into a role-playing game. And it was the next day that I, I contacted you and I read your article and I saw that you're already doing this. Synchronicity. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I told my therapist this week. Mm -hmm. Synchronicity. <laughs> It just feels like it's kind of time for this to be be spoken about. Um, I've done a lot of talking around it in terms of here's some educational impacts and you know this is 
those kinds of things are helpful, but I think it, I, I've felt very strongly in the last year that it's time to be just very transparent about the fact that this can change lives. And we do need to be very intentional and careful about the way that we implement it in order to maximize those benefits. And so, you know, I've been a lot more straightforward with my partner and I, uh, Shaila Hedgard, who got, we wrote a, a manifesto earlier this year, uh, which is in the Nordic LARP tradition is kind of a, a cheeky way to get certain uh, opinions or, or, or ways of thinking out there. Uh, but this proposal was, or this, uh, this manifesto is essentially about how, yes, we believe that Games can be used for transformation, and that role playing is an incredibly important tool. And we think that safety structures are incredibly important to focus on, as well as integration structures, um, which I think integration is the one area that I think um, we don't talk enough about uh, when discussing these kinds of things. We think about design, we think about what players might be doing, or uh, what sorts of things we might want them to experience, but we don't often think about how we can transfer those experience into something that integrates with their day-to-day -day life. So that's something I've been, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately. Yeah, Woody and I had a very long conversation a few years ago when we started the idea of this program. I think the, the show had already started, but it didn't have like, uh, I think the, the mission wasn't clear. And I remember we had our four hour mission discussion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I kept asking Woody questions. And, and after a while I said, Woody, you keep using the term transformational and transformative. Mm -hmm. Like that's the word that keeps coming up. And this whole show came from that idea that, that Woody, from an experience that Woody had during a game and he, he saw, like, he felt like he had changed after it. And, um, a few years later we presented at, packs unplugged uh, which is the the video game uh, not the video game packs is a, usually a video game convention and they did their first board gaming convention we yeah. went to the first year and we had a panel there and we it was it was all about it was basically an episode of the show live presenting the 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 core idea that games can be transformative and i think it was half of that experience was us inviting people from the audience to come up and share their stories mm -hmm. and people wanted to share their stories because they agreed with that idea. They knew that they were, they were changed by those experiences for, for the better. And we've tried to continue to explore that idea here on the show. So. I love that. That's so yeah. great. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of stigma. Well, there is a lot of stigma around play in general, adult play and yeah. uh, even adolescent play. And there's also stigma around, for some reason, games meaning anything or games being meaningful experiences. Um, a lot of people prefer to think of it as just entertainment or just fun because it allows them to have what we call alibi or a sense of distance from whatever they're playing. So if they're playing mm -hmm. someone that they would personally find abhorrent, for example, as a character, if they say, oh, I'm just having fun, then they don't have to actually reflect upon what is happening or, or take ownership of it, I should say. Um, and that's totally understandable. And alibi is super important for why we play and how we can play. We, we have permission to play because we are all agreeing that this is just a game. 
But I think that what it can do is it can also prevent some of these deeper integrations from happening. Because if it's all just a game, then it, it wasn't meaningful. And if it's not meaningful, then me sharing that I had a transformative experience from it will sound strange and perhaps even dangerous to certain people uh, who are very invested in it being just a game. So I feel like those trends have been sort of like bumping up against each other for a long time now. And I think that, you know, once you actually start asking people like you, like you did at PAX, it's very clear that a lot of people, let's say, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people have had deeply transformative experiences when playing. And it, those experiences may be based on the game itself or the characters that they were playing, or it may be based on the community that they accessed. I mean, it could they could be social transformations as well or skills that they learned while playing. Um, and even people who might say, oh, I'm only playing for fun, when you dig a little deeper and ask them, okay, well, tell me more about, you know, what, what kinds of experiences you had, they might say something like, oh, I became a better leader at work when I realized that I had that potential within me in the game. You know, yeah. so even if they're not consciously owning that, yes, this has changed my life, you can kind of um, extract that from from the things that they actually share about their play experiences. And when we think about why we have been invested in this for so long, you know, people don't usually invest their time and energy in something unless it's meaningful and unless it's it's somehow providing value to their lives. And um, I think just being very intentional about that and being very clear about what play does for people and what we personally have experienced as a result of play and being transparent about that can help us remove some of that stigma around talking about these experiences. This bias towards seeing games only as for fun, I, I'm not really sure where that comes from because I've never had I mean, I've probably had some games in my life where it's like, yeah, that was just for fun. But I, I have this premise in the back of my mind, and it may not be that I can, you know, show it in research. I can only show it in personal experience. But I have this premise that nothing we do is just entertainment, mm -hmm. that there is a reason for it coming from some unconscious place. Or, you know, these are not transgressive experiences. These can be growth experiences, particularly if we do it with intentionality. But even without intentionality, there may be unconscious forces that are driving us towards some forward destiny that we don't necessarily see our growing edge as you talk about in your paper and people hate to, i was just gonna make a, a quick kind of snide comment people hate <laughs> talking people hate talking about their unconscious so you there's know that. There, there's immediate resistance often when you try to point out things that might be unconscious because it's unconscious for a reason right there's an anxiety yeah. there so there came a time in history whenever games and play transformed from a thing we did as a community to come together or to, um, to learn into purely a recreational pastime. And that's where the current mentality is at, um, that play and gaming are any kind of games are just pastimes. Um, People watch football or baseball purely for entertainment. Um, it's something they do in their off time. And it's uh, golf is something that you don't play for the game. You play it to network with people, to 
hobnob in a sense. It's you, you don't do these things in the general public consensus with any kind of real purpose. It's just something you do in your off time when you get the spare time. So it's, it's not something that we designate as a necessary thing in life, except for another purpose like networking, like letting off some steam or something. And the idea that it can be useful to a human being for their own edification and necessary for that edification is, is something that's just now starting to come back into society. Well, I mean, a couple things. The first thing is I would say that it is transgressive uh, to play because mm -hmm. we are often told uh, at a certain age we're not supposed to be playing anymore unless it's in very specific contexts. So you were talking about sports, right. sports, for example, is a place in which play is allowed, but it's very tightly controlled how play is structured, right? Um, yeah. And I would say, you know, forms of the arts that are societally condoned are, are, are places where, you know, people can be in a play, but it's a very, you know, it's a very a structured, directed type of experience. Um, so I do think that play can be transgressive when people are playing with identity, when they're playing with what is reality, um, that can feel threatening to the outside world. And so there is a sort of pride movement in a way around reclaiming play and saying this is valuable to me even even play just for entertainment so i think what happens is a lot of people are afraid to to share that these experiences are meaningful because then they might be further stigmatized by their group mm. um, because it you know if we think about the satanic panic and all of these sort of trends with early role-playing games around this fear of people losing themselves in their character or learning the occult or whatever. If I say, yeah, I grew a lot from playing this character and the growth that I experienced is somehow different from the social environment that I'm in and is not supported by that environment for whatever reason, then that is transgression. You know, um, Even the act of pretending to be someone other than you are can be considered transgressive. Um, unless it's in certain contexts. So, uh, you know, I'd like to kind of think a little bit about this word transgression, like transgression in what way? You know, if we think about the id, is this transgression in that it's allowing parts of our psyche to to um, come forward or like shadow parts or unconscious mm -hmm. parts? That is a form of transgression in a way, um, even if it's just transgression from our own perspective of ourself. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about is this idea of what fun actually is, what it means to have fun. Um, you know, are we releasing energy? Are we experiencing catharsis? Are we, even if we're just laughing and having a good time with friends, is there a transformative impact simply from that process, that co-creative, connective process with other human beings in ways that are different than people usually connect? You know, um, and experiences of strong emotion uh, being allowed by the group, especially for people who were assigned male at birth, for example, who have very strict restrictions around what kinds of emotions they're allowed to express. That can be a really powerful experience and just be feel like fun, if that makes sense. So, you know, um, I don't want to invalidate any any person's, you know, 
perspective on what they're doing. But I would like to dig deeper into what keeps bringing us back into these into these experiences. And if we think about what our lives would be like without them, what would be different? You know, are there ways in which we've learned about ourselves that have directly informed our social groups, our relationships, our the way we operate in the workplace, you know, running a podcast, for example, you know, <laughs> would there be a huge hole in your life if you didn't have this thing? And who would you be without it is something that I've, I've been kind of pondering lately. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about. So there's there's a I lost my train of thought, and I apologize. <laughs> the thought of not having podcasts in your life was too much. Oh, it <laughs> it was just, I couldn't take it. You blanked out. It, it temporarily what? evaporated out of existence. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for the existential crisis. There. No, no. It's, Thanks it, a lot, Sarah. Hey, I, I appreciate existential crisis, I think, most of the time, except when I'm deep in it. Um So I, I guess I'll just go on to talking about, you know, one of the one of the tenets of transpersonal psychology is that we need a experience of altered states of consciousness. Mm-hmm. That it's it's a birthright for us to be able to experience something besides the the sort of here and now physical reality that we're inhabiting right now. Um, and part of what I was reading in your work suggested that you see role playing games or at least your research indicates that role-playing games are an altered state of consciousness. And I've been playing with that idea for a while with no real place to hang it to, to make it make sense to me. Uh, but it seems like there's something there, like we're involving ourselves in a reality that's not necessarily physically present. And identities that are not our own, at least not that we uh, would identify with in our day-to-day life. Um, so... Uh, I mean, identity alteration is a form of dissociation. So that is an altered state. Um, yeah. And and I really want to dig deeper. I'm actually, you know, considering writing about about this particular thing around altered states of consciousness and the community that surrounds them. So it's not enough to merely have an altered state where maybe one is experiencing oneself as someone else in a different world. Um, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a reinforcement and a group validation that happens when it's experienced together. And when others are mutually reinforcing that collective experience, that's extremely powerful. And so those two things combined, I think, are are what makes role-playing such an alchemical container because you're creating these little bubbles of reality where you can experiment with different ways of thinking and being in the world and different systems for how to view the world. And everybody is agreeing to to make an agreement that that exists for that period of time. And that is, uh, in a way, revolutionary, you know, even if it's not necessarily threatening the outside structures, it is permitting a sense of self uh, and a sense of connection and interaction that wouldn't have normally existed. Um, And I mean, we know it's an altered state because we have things like dual consciousness um, where, you know, you're able to notice 
yourself as a character, but also as the observer who's playing at the same time. And, you know, I've studied immersion quite a bit. Immersion into character specifically is quite interesting to me, but there's all different kinds of immersion. There's immersion into the activity, into the game, into community, all these kinds of things. But um, immersion into character particularly is quite interesting to me because there's sort of a spectrum of how close to the character you feel like you are in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not just identity wise, like, do I feel like I am similar to this character, which is also of interest to me, but do I feel like this is happening to me as a person or do I feel distant from it? And there's, you know, various ways that people describe their, the phenomenology of their experience of being in character. And, you know, one school of thought, which may or may not uh, be entirely accurate, is that the deeper one gets into character, uh, the more powerful the experience will be, or the, the more, uh, the closer to your actual self the character is, the more bleed is possible. Um, bleed is the transfer mm -hmm. of emotions and experiences and all sorts of things over uh, from from you to the character or the character to you. Um, and, and that can be seen as a liberatory thing. Um, so Janaea Kemper talks a lot about this. She writes about emancipatory bleed. So the fact that people with marginalized identities, if they can experience their self, their identity uh, in this fictional world as somehow more empowered, that can actually impact the way they view themselves in their daily lives. Um, and, and they might not have had that opportunity otherwise based on the way our social roles are. So I do think it is an altered state. Um, you know, whenever we're talking about phenomenological states of being, it's, you're, there's never adequate words for it, right? Like we can attempt, <laughs> but it's, 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 uh, it's definitely a, a, a different state. And there are altered states within altered states that can occur. So I'm also very interested in ritual in play. So when we're playing our characters, but then we have an in-game ritual, like a wedding ceremony or a religious ceremony or, or, or a funeral, you know, that brings people into even deeper states of altered consciousness. Because if we think about what ritual does, you know, in day-to-day -day life in general, that is, I believe, an altered state. It's a liminal state. So, you know, we have multiple frames of, of, of being, you know, altered, let's say. Um, and because of that, I think it's also important going back to the safety conversation to really consider that we are dealing with psychology, you know, sorry, mm -hmm. folks who just want it to be fun, but we are dealing with, <laughs> our, we are bringing our brains to the table, right? Like, and we are putting ourselves in, in vulnerable states. And so it is important as a community for us to think about what that looks like in terms of the safety structures we build. I feel like for I, I can speak for myself and I'll let Josue and Brian speak for themselves. But for me, uh, I find that it's 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 actually a little bit harder for me to project into a character that doesn't have some similarity to myself as much as I might want to experience what it's like to be a characteristic that I'm not. Uh, I, I find that I, I get challenged by that in the midst of it. I, I can recall some games where I've been playing where I played with people that were particularly violent in the game. And that is so far from my my personal way of seeing the world or my personal way of handling things that I almost always gravitate away from characters that 
play those kinds of things. And I, I catch myself thinking, well, maybe that's a growing edge. Maybe I need to work on uh, trying to be a violent character. Maybe I need to work on trying to play a darker kind of role. Uh, and I just haven't, I, you know, we're talking about psychology here. I just haven't had the, uh, the I guess, the, the protective bubble around my ego enough to allow something like that to happen. Um, and, and I don't know, Brian and Josue, would you say the same things about your experiences? I know, Josue, your, your, your experience is limited in role-playing games, but the little bit of experience that you've had, and, and Brian, your depth of experience, is there anything there where you feel like it's hard to contact a part of, a part of yourself that's not a normal part of yourself? Well, I mean, that's true in both role-playing games and video games, because, you know, games like um, Red Dead Redemption or... Um, Which I can't uh, play. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've played that game, and I try to play it as close to myself as possible, but sometimes you have to make a hard decision in it, because yeah. the game gives you crappy decisions that you have to choose between. And it was interesting for me playing that, because I was, like I said, forced into choose one bad decision or another one. And I've taken my students through something similar where I've, uh, at the beginning of, of a book, um, where the characters have to make hard decisions, um, a long way gone and, um, night where they have to make these terrible decisions. And I've posed them with some moral quandaries before they're like, but what if I don't want to do either thing? Well, you have to do one or the other. That's the point of this. And now you have to explain why you did that. And they have to go through that whole scenario. So in role-playing games, um, I, I've done the same kind of thing. If there's a certain aspect of my personality that I want to explore, I might create a character. You know, a lot of my characters wind up being similar to me, yeah. but I'll give them an aspect of their personality that's different because I want to look into that. I created a character who was just very high energy and very random and didn't think through his actions very well. Um, because I'm not that guy. And it was interesting playing that character. The one time I played him, um, I played in a game where I had to be just derisive to other people. Um, Mm. a good guy. I played John Constantine from, uh, from DC comics in a superhero game. And he's just this foul mouthed, um, couldn't care less. And he'll sacrifice, he'll sacrifice his mother for the greater good. And I played that guy. That was an interesting thing. But I also play a lot of characters very, very similar to myself because it's interesting just exploring what I think it means to be me. That That's powerful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I get so um, deep into... I can't think of a, a better word right now, but... Uh, immersion? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, my immersion when I when I'm reading a book, watching a TV show, like the world disappears for me. I'm in that world. I'm crying. I'm feeling things. They are experiences for me. And um, until recently, video games were the most uh, immersive experiences for me from, from like uh, uh, just story narrative games, the, the emergent experiences that come from a game, right? Like every, every game is a new role that I'm, that I'm put into play. But it wasn't until I started exploring the idea of role-play um, gaming, right, in the context that we're talking about it now, in, in starting with video games themselves, like MMOs that have role-play servers. Like that was when I when I discovered that I had I couldn't 
I couldn't comprehend what that meant because I didn't have the tabletop role playing experience. And now the limited um, role playing experience that I have um, in tabletop games, it's making me think about the role playing, the experience of role play in real life. Like I felt like, oh, this feels, this is something new, but it's also very familiar because I do take on a different identity and different characteristics and I'm playing a role in a similar way as I am in this D&D game as I am when I speak to my father because I'm a different person than I am usually and I am different than when I'm at work and I'm different than um, in different contexts and yeah there's there's bleed either way right I mean I imagine when I now when I go out to places I mean you know for years now but I'm, I go out to places I'm like oh this this person who's in customer service like this person is playing a role and this person is is being uh genuine like uh and they're not like this person's more real uh or, or again not more real but this person is playing a role and this person is maybe not I don't know that for sure um but I but I've started to see the world more in that way so I'm curious and I'm and I'm my mind is in this place right now based on some things that that you just said uh Sarah I'm curious if you can speak on or if you've you know done any research or or just your thoughts on the role play, how different the role play in gaming is versus the role play that we do in our daily lives and different roles and different with different responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I, I would bring up Irving Goffman's presentation of self in everyday life because Goffman believed that every social interaction, including the ones we're having right now, is a stage and we're all playing roles within it. Um, so I'm playing the expert being interviewed and, and, and you all are playing experts <laughs> that are doing the interviewing and, and offering your own expertise, right? Which is a different stage than I'll be when I get off this call and I'm talking to my partner, for example, right? Um, and so the idea is that we're always expected to perform some sort of persona from using union terminology, uh, some sort of external shell, some ex sort of external role. Uh, based on the social setting that we're in. Uh, and so I would say that, yes, we do that all the time. Um, we may even do that with ourselves at times. Um, you know, we have certain ideas of what our identity is, and we may reinforce those in certain ways in order to feel coherent. Um, and, you know, people like myself who have multiple identities uh, may have that be, feel a little bit more of flexible or fluid with that than than people who have a very strong sense of this is my ego identity um, i think there's a difference though between the social stages that we're normally on and the sense of selfness that we have and the experience of stepping into the magic circle of play and taking on this dual consciousness where we are both ourselves and this other person. That's a different phenomenological state. Even if we have these moments of immersion where we feel really swept up into what's happening and maybe the feelings that we feel uh, through our character are actually feel very real and the experiences feel very real and they are real experiences and real feelings. Yeah. It's just that yeah. we have this sort of cognitive dissonance around it, right? Because it's play and it's fiction. So it's not real, but it is, you know, and so that, that is a different state, I think, than a lot of people would say an average social interaction is. And certainly the sense of, of, of doubling, uh, of identity, uh, is, is, probably not what most people experience. That being said, I've been getting really into Winnicott lately. 
and he talks about the authentic self versus the false self and that when we're when when we are not allowed to express our authentic self you know through playful activities we create a false self in order to perform what society wants us to perform and that and that creates alienation and angst so something to consider is the degree to which people even know what their true identity is and the degree to which paradoxically play may reveal that to them in ways that they wouldn't normally experience this is a, a, a common phenomenon for example example for people who are, are are trans or have a different gender identity than was assigned at birth and then they play a character that permits them that gives them that alibi the the opportunity to express and experience a, a different gender and and then all of a sudden they transition so that that that's a, a practical tangible example of what i'm talking about where it's like the authentic self was allowed to express through this playful activity and then that then transitions to the ego identity outside and uh, whitney strix beltran has written about this and she calls it ego bleed so when parts of your ego yeah. actually bleed into your daily ego not just you know transitory emotions hopefully that answers your question <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 it, it's fascinating because uh, underneath all of that there's there's this ongoing question in me that's like well authentic self that's a really hard thing to find and if we talk about rotating this kaleidoscope of wheels around ourselves that present ourselves in certain ways it, it's really hard to see the true self that's at the center of it all and to, to find you know the, the one aspect is that okay all these things are me and the other aspect is none of these things are me uh and, and so then you're kind of at a sort of buddhist uh dichotomy here where it's either the self or no self kind of thing um or but, both. Or, or, or non-dual. Yeah, non right? right? <laughs> yeah. It's all me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, a little solipsistic, but I, I can kind of I can kind of see it. Uh, when it... So uh, an experience I had this week, I'm talking with my therapist, I'm talking about a particularly challenging thing that I'm about to go through, and he's he's been on board with me about a lot of the things I've been dealing with and trying to identify you know how games are making an impact and how it is that this thing is feeding me or this thing's not feeding me and he suggested that I go into this challenging situation by rolling myself up as a character and presenting myself as that character in this situation I was blown away number one because he's not a role player <laughs> uh, but then number two is just like such a freeing idea to to create myself for the moment or to let that part of myself shine forth as as I've created it kind of thing, as opposed to being whatever authentic self it might be at that moment. And it sounded, if I can do it, <laughs> if I can do it, it sounds very liberating. It sounds like, yeah, I can just put on the mask, be this other person, and and present as assertive and strong and able to handle what I perceive to be an anxiety-inducing situation. And what would it be like to try that? I've been really good at sort of putting on characters when I'm playing games. Putting on characters when I'm in real life is much harder for me, I think. Why do you think uh, that is? Ooh. There's a deep therapeutic question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's, been, that's been a hard decision. Like part of me has always said I wanted to go and study acting because I wanted to see what it was like to be other characters. It, it's a strength of ego thing in the moment where I'm identifying with a much 
a uh, weaker part of myself than than I have than I want to have access to. That's a strange way of putting it, and I don't know if it's a cop out answer or a real answer, but that's what I got for now. Okay. I mean, uh, one thing I would also recommend thinking about is what are the stakes? So if we're in a state of play, we have theoretically less consequences than we, we do right. in daily life, right? So it might be uh, easier to try to put on a mask or to try to portray a different part of the self in a playful state that you know is bounded and that you know you'll step out of and people aren't going to hold you too accountable for what happens in that state than it would be in our daily lives, right? When the stakes are much yeah. higher, when failure has a much more uh, uh, potent impact on our lives. So that might also be a place to look of like, what am I afraid of failing at? Or what would happen? What might happen if I'm, if I, if I'm not successful at this thing? I read some research a long time ago that called it the magic circle of gaming. Mm -hmm. the, the whole magic circle concept of pretend in that what happens inside, it's like Vegas, what happens inside this bubble stays inside this bubble. <laughs> but it's um, really this, not though. I mean, we have bleed and we have <laughs> all sorts of things come out. It's a polite fiction as we call it. <laughs> right. But, yes, but it gives you that freedom to do something help, to say, right. yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was fascinated by looking at the, the work that you were writing and seeing that you said basically that uh, for some people, at least, they believe the game doesn't end until the last player in the game dies. Mm -hmm. And we're not talking about in the game itself. We're talking about in real life. And that was a fascinating concept for me to wrap my head around, the idea that the games that I've played are still going right now or still impacting right now. That's that's beyond anything I've thought about. <laughs> <laughs> there was a situation about, uh, I'd say, a little over 20 years ago where um, some friends and I were making characters for a game, and the whole game was supposed to start off with us literally as ourselves, and then tra you know, transitioning into this game world, like getting special abilities and stuff, but we had to create ourselves as literally ourselves. And so we did it completely independently, gave ourselves the stats that we felt like we should have and the different um, benefits and drawbacks that we thought we would have. And then we came together and discussed it. And it was interesting seeing what some people thought were their weak points or their strong points, mm -hmm. um, how accurately they described themselves or how they inaccurately saw themselves based on the way or based on our own experiences. And then we had that big discussion completely outside of a therapeutic station it just kind of happened organically about why do you think you have such a low willpower i don't know man and we just had this big discussion of i i think you made your intelligence a little too high i don't think your genius level oh my gosh that's, that's dangerous territory there well, yeah one person made themselves intelligence way above ours and we we're like well why do you think you're more intelligent than us and he says well i don't i just gave myself this because you know on the scale it described we're like eh. I don't think you're that much smarter than us. And you were never friends again. No, <laughs> well, we were. It was, I mean, a lot, some of us described ourselves way off base because we were trying to describe this idealized version mm -hmm. of ourselves. And we all had to give concessions on that saying, okay, maybe I'm not that strong physically. Okay, maybe I should dial that back. Or, you know what? Holy crap, I am way, I am way smarter than I give myself credit for. Maybe I should give myself another point. And pull down my uh, my my um, constitution a bit because 
Yeah, I, I do tend to get sick a lot more than that. Okay. So there, there were some give and takes and there were some gentle ribbing. None of us were being mean to each other, but it was just like, really, you're going to give yourself a super genius intellect? Are you are you sure about that? And he's like, well, maybe it was a little high. Maybe I should pull that back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you're, you're never going to be in, a, in a, a room with friends and be like, Hey, uh, I just want to run something by all of you. I think I'm smarter than all of you. Can we just discuss that for a second? Uh, but it did give us that safe space think? to discuss what we thought of each other. Yeah. <laughs> Without meaning to. Yeah. I I love that we're bringing this up because I, I mentioned it earlier, and I, I don't want to leave the impression that I think one has to play close to home in order to have a transformative experience. That's clearly not true. Some people who play someone that's completely opposite to themselves can have transformative experiences and, and insights as a result. But um, I do a lot of this kind of play, this close to home play, or even mirror play where you're playing yourself, but in a different set of circumstances or uh, my book has a, a typology of different uh, role-playing types based on how close you identify with the traits of a character, personally. Um, and so what you're describing sounds a lot like a kind of mixture of what I call the doppelganger, which is you, uh, a version of you in a fictional world, and the augmented self. So you plus some sort of uh, superpower, let's say. You know, and, and that that small change can completely change the narrative, can completely change the way the person thinks about themselves. Um, and also, like, I, I've been running a, a Mage the Ascension-based uh, game, uh, which is uh, Mage, for those who don't know, is a, is, is a game about people awakening into the, the paradigm that they can alter reality with their consciousness. So, you know, mm. uh, and, and that that paradigm, the way they think about reality is the me method through which they alter it. Um, so it's a very, uh, you know, heady game. And it, it, I, I play it uh, with people as themselves. And so I let them opt into what they want to bring in. Um, we give them a different name. Some of them want to play farther from home than others, but often they're using, the idea is to use parts of your own life, parts of your own experience. This is not a magical, fantastical land. This is, what do I, what does Sarah think about magic? What interests me about altered states of consciousness, for example, and how to achieve them, like drum circles or whatever, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and really being very grounded in what we as players know and believe and feel and are moved towards. And that opens up all sorts of conversations that I don't think people would even have in their daily lives with each other be, just because the alibi isn't there. Um, the, the, the setting hasn't been staged for those conversations to exist. It's not necessarily that they they wouldn't feel comfortable. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. But but this idea that all of us have the ability to to expand our consciousness in a way to where we can we can start affecting the world around us, I think is extremely powerful and validating our, you know, metaphysical beliefs, our spiritual, philosophical beliefs with one another and practices, I think can really lead towards some of those transpersonal goals you were talking about. So that's kind of like the, I, I read your article and it talked about Epiphany. Was that a game that you were involved with? Yes. Yeah, so this is a game that, that it, it, it almost seems like if, if it wasn't tagged RPG or, or LARP at all, then I would have seen, I would have said, you know, that's just a, a basic uh, spiritual psychology retreat because I, I've played those roles. 
mm-hmm. in in that sense. And it, it just fascinated me because, okay, the idea that you could play yourself and go into this this situation, um, I, I was trying to just imagine what it would be like to play myself in the first place. Um, and that, that means that I'm like, I've got some kind of idea of who myself is and I'm, I'm kind of gravitating towards it. Um, but it, it just... It just sounded, it, it started to make me think that all of the spiritual retreats I've gone on have been role plays. There you go. <laughs> and all of the role plays maybe have had a have spiritual, been spiritual retreats. <laughs> people don't like that one. <laughs> they don't want to hear about that one. Um, I, I, some people are open to it, uh, I would say. But I, I, the vast majority of gamers that I know um, are, you know, would self identify probably as atheists. But um, yeah, I mean, the idea was to create a retreat experience. Um, that, you know, and having myself being ha- not had a lot of those at the time, uh, it was sort of my my foray into trying to bring those two worlds together. And since then, I've done a lot of weekend retreats, including one last weekend over the Internet. I've done two since the pandemic started, actually, which is an, an, an interesting kind of setting. But yes, um, we do play roles when we walk into those places. And sometimes we play roles in spiritual retreats. Like, literally, I've done lots of different role-playing exercises that have been sometimes called that sometimes not but you know like Mm -hmm. psychodrama type exercises like what would you say to your mother right now and then the other person holds you as if you know it was your mother um that's powerful stuff but it's it's definitely role-taking um but yes there there's this alibi that is afforded by certain kinds of environments and i'm i'm sort of loosely calling them transformational communities and i think role-playing games have a lot of potential to be those kinds of communities however if if not everybody in the community is on board and if some people are very resistant in it it might limit the comfort that some people have to really go there. And one of the things that I find really interesting about transformational, personal transformation retreats or spiritual retreats is that the, everybody's there with that express purpose and that express intention, right? Mm-hmm. And they may have other intentions as well, you know, that are ego-based, who knows? But, but at least we're all on the same page about this is what we're doing here. And so with Epiphany, I just put that in the, the very first paragraph of the design document. We're here to explore personal transformation through LARP. Yeah. Um, which is not common, I would say. <laughs> no. It's the first time I'd ever heard of it. <laughs> but I mean, I think if we're really going to be serious about this, I mean, we live in very serious times. There's a lot of things happening. Like, yeah. you know, um, and, and, and not everybody has to be serious, by the way, about it. You know, if they just need to, like you were saying, blow off steam or feel, you know, like escape. People like to use the word escape. I don't particularly mm-hmm. like that word. Um, but, you know, if, if they feel the need to do that, that's fine. But for those of us who are craving change within ourselves or craving some sort of working through of, of ourselves, then why not just be explicit and have buy-in and consent from everybody involved and negotiate as we're going along what that looks like? And this gets into the safety aspect of things, how important it is to have a safe container to be able to do this because you can do it much better when you're in an environment that is supportive and when you're hopefully with people that are not as resistant to the ideas as maybe some other people would be. Exactly, exactly. And I'd like to just note that safety is a perception. (laughs) 
There are some people that feel extremely safe with me and have never felt safer with another human being. And there are other people who feel deeply unsafe with me, you know, and they're both right for them. Yeah. Um, and, but, but the important thing is, is the perception of safety. Obviously there are ways in which we can make our environments actually safe, like avoiding things catching on fire and that kind of thing. But yeah. a lot of psychological safety is about do I feel like I can voice my needs? Do I feel like they will be honored and respected? If I if I have a request, do I feel comfortable enough sharing it? Do I feel like I'm going to be shut down or ostracized? You know, and and there are some times when that will happen as a result of safety culture. So that's another tension, is if somebody has a, a, a request or a way of presenting themselves that feels threatening to somebody else, they may you know receive. A pushback or a conversation or something like that and so some people feel unsafe by safety culture so <laughs> there's it's it's complex right um yeah but uh i think yes it, it establishing the perception of safety is very important for this kind of container to to be able to unfold and to, to be able to be held and continue to be held as people are going through potentially explosive types of, of moving of energy and uh, shifting of self. Yeah. I'm glad that we keep bringing up this idea of safety, not just on the show, but within the community. For years, I've gone from, we can do this work within therapy to we can't limit it to the therapeutic setting. Um, this is also happening and there are opportunities to use this to to understand each other and ourselves outside of a therapeutic setting and in the united states it's it's so difficult and expensive to be in this in a in a situation or in a in an environment in a relationship right that's considered therapeutic and regulated and all of that so we keep doing it more and more outside of those spaces and the more i talk about it i always find myself like okay gotta be careful <laughs> because because yeah. i know that some stuff can go down and um you can it's it's we need some sort of um yeah just safety right so i i love that we keep having this conversation as we keep exploring the idea and, and not limiting ourselves in in how and where we can see these opportunities for growth and then continue to have that conversation so that we can be safe. <laughs> yeah. 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 And one thing I, I would say about the therapeutic aspect is it's kind of like sex. People are going to do it, whether you condone it or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so to me, that brings issues of how do we create safe containers as a group, whether or not we are certified to do so to the yeah. forefront, right? Like, it, and, and some people have a sort of response that I consider kind of, I would say, uh, resistance or knee jerk. That's like, oh, well, only somebody who's licensed can do that or only somebody who's trained can do that. And I'm like, so then how do we help people who are going there in these experiences and who need support? Like, does that mean that we're not qualified to actually give support to another human being? Because if 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 those are the restrictions, then we're going to have a really hard time as a, as a community in 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 supporting each other moving forward. And so it's a tension. And and I I I I'm, I'm always interested in ways to. I don't want to necessarily say professionalize because that indicates money, um, but to. Yeah 
to um, to gain training, to gain expertise. You know, how can we create situations where people can become more aware, um, can can practice certain skills, um, can uh, you know create communities that um, are supportive of safety? Like, you know, what happens if a crisis unfolds at your LARP? Like, who, you know, what are the processes in place? Are those processes actually reinforced or are they simply put on the website and then never touched again? You know, are there, how do people communicate if they have a, a need? And, and so, yeah, it's just sort of an ongoing conversation. And I think it ties into ongoing conversations we're having in our culture at large around things like consent. Like, how do we communicate with another human being? You know, is this okay when I'm getting close? Because we're talking about edge work, right? We're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, playing within this growing edge space. Yeah, it does, stuff's going to come up. And so it's not if, it's when. And what do we, how do we handle it? How do we hold that? Yeah. Without necessarily having to have some kind of uh, psychology-based certification process. I mean, that would be great. But I, I've, I've done therapy for an entire year when I was the most deeply immersed I've ever been in a game in my life because we were playing a lot of forum online play. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was in therapy. This was about 10 years ago. And my therapist really dropped the ball. First of all, he had no idea what I was talking about because I did not find somebody who was like psychodrama aware. He, he had very little input and I was describing all these relationships that I was having in game and out of game and how complex it was. And he was just, because this was an ongoing va vampire campaign. So I was very okay. embroiled, emotionally embroiled. Yeah. And he, he, you know, I ended up having a breakdown and he felt like, you know, uh, the rug had been pulled out from under him. And I'm like, I've been, if you, if you've been paying attention, the signs have been here for a while, right? So I, I don't. I also want to step away from this notion that if someone has a certification, that they're they're you know automatically safe or they automatically know yeah. how to how to respond. I think that there's a special uh, set of circumstances that uh, something like a role playing game creates that makes it uh, unique psychologically. You know, most, most therapists aren't trained to deal with, well, there's this alter ego and this alter ego and this relationship <laughs> that you're having in this fictional environment and how that's impacting the, you know, <laughs> that, that, those are, yeah. those are, uh, that's unique. a really complex set of variables. Yes. Yeah. That, that's crazy. Um, I mean, there's, there's, uh, yeah, I don't believe, I mean, the one way that we've tried to do this, right, we've built a big community and I've been very, um, explicit about not limiting it to people like because all of this um like the, the geek therapy community started i was a therapist so i was only talking to other therapists and as i started expanding that i was like no no there's so much that i'm learning i'm learning more from the people who aren't therapists from the people who don't uh think that we should listen to them because they have a degree or because they 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 know especially about these these things that aren't a part of that type of training so it started with having other types of professionals involved who were all you know, who, who identified as geeks and, and loved gaming and loved um, pop culture and things like that. And then I've been very explicit to to have all of the community spaces open so that we can learn from each other. Um, and that's that's just one way to do it. Right. But that's one uh, that's that's the the intention that I've been putting into our community building has always been to have other voices that are you know, know more about uh, role playing, right? Or know more about these experiences and from different perspectives. Um, this show is like a 
beautiful example of of that right like we bring in uh, people who who use games in many different ways this conversation is a is a is a beautiful part of that and um yeah i mean there's no i don't think there's one right way i've, I've disagreed strongly with many people about this <laughs> everybody has an opinion on how to do this but um but yeah yeah i don't i also don't um it's funny like with everything going on i've been i'm like man i i i feel it like i need to i would really benefit from <laughs> from uh, going to see a therapist again and because of an experience like you just um mm -hmm. described actually the whole reason why um, we started this geek therapy community was because I was surrounded by therapists who were dismissive of these things that are such important parts of our lives. Which is and damaging. Like so that is damaging. Doing damage yeah. to your client. Yeah. 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 And so my, my mission has been to, you know, reach people um, and, and have them not be dismissive. Like if there's, if there is one way to describe <laughs> what we've been doing all these years is like, don't be dismissive, right? Like if it matters, to your client it matters if it matters to your to your son or your daughter it matters if it matters to your students it matters don't be dismissive and yeah like your your example is heartbreaking to me because i know that it happens all the time and that's one of the things that i'm a bit resistant about in my own um personal work lately is like i you know what i've been doing this on my own a while i need to i definitely want to want to <laughs> work with someone um to, to help guide me through that through that work that i'm doing right now but i remember those experiences with with my own therapist and just meeting others yeah. i have a beautiful relationship with my current therapist i mean we're like soul yeah. sisters you know yeah, and yeah. uh yeah. i i didn't i didn't do therapy since that at all i just refused i was like i can't go through this again yeah. And it's like dating, you know, how are you going to find the right person? And are, do they have the insurance and blah, you know, and um, I was having a hard time. My husband at the time was like, you know, I don't know how to support you right now. Can you ask for help? So I was like, okay, fine. So I get on our insurance and I start looking through people's profiles and I saw a woman who does, and we have some friends that sort of guided us and what to look for, for people who might have alternative viewpoints. Yeah. and be open to alternative viewpoints and so there's sort of a nexus point of like lgbtqia um queer poly bdsm like people who would be open to different states of being different ways of 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 relating yeah. and mm -hmm. and who aren't going to just say well the problem that you're having is that you're not being quote unquote normal right um, and, um, so I, I found somebody who also specialized in Reiki and I was like, I just sent her an email and we've been, you know, it took a while. Uh, she wrote me back and, and, and said, okay, I have room for you. And it's, we've been together for about three years now. So it's been very powerful. And so, you know, um, that might be a, a strategy is, is looking for people who, who openly talk about uh adhering to different types of ways of being and supporting people who do that yeah that's great advice yeah that is i, I mean it's you know if, if you're limited to something like psychology today which is where I, I'm, I'm posted currently there's only certain parameters that you can even present mm -hmm. that will work on that website you know you you couldn't check off rpg therapy perhaps if you wanted to or you couldn't check off you know, you can check off LGBTQ and, and things of that nature, but when it gets to more of a geek therapy type stuff, you wouldn't be able to check off that and you'd have to put it in your narrative. And there's, there's no way for people to search for that necessarily. Uh, but that is a certain mind state that not everybody's going to have. And so 
I think I would suggest that anybody who's looking for a therapist look for somebody who has a very similar set of values to you, only they can keep a safe container for you. That's, that's the trick. It's so funny that you say that um, about the, I mean, b- both things, like the psychology today, yeah, like you can't check off um, beyond the normal, right? Or like, or like <laughs> There should be a box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but before I became a therapist, I... I went through attunement processes for Reiki. It was the world that I was involved in, but I never included that in in any of my. Once I became a therapist, like I, I never talked about that publicly. It was never on my profile. Mm-hmm. I, had, I hadn't even thought about that until now. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, That's I was having all of these spiritual experiences, and I knew that if I was dealing with a hardcore scientist that we wouldn't be able to converse with each other about this, right? Like they would be boiling it down to cognition, which is fine, but so limited, you know, I just wouldn't be aligned. And so, you know, of course I get looking at union stuff, looking at people who are trauma specialists or just understand dissociation, that's all possible. Um, But when I saw that this person, yeah, is just openly talking about using Reiki in her practice, I was like, ah, this feels really good. I wanna go for this. And so similarly, I think if somebody is openly talking about their hobby, quote unquote hobbies, uh, that might be things like video games or other geek hobbies, um, which as we know are more than just hobbies for a lot of people, they're they're profoundly meaningful, um, Mm -hmm. then that signals to other people, hey, it's welcome to talk about this here, you know, and we can, we actually have a shared language, we have a shared language. way of of being maybe uh and or at least of thinking about certain kinds of activities yeah yeah i have two really deep questions that could go into really deep directions on both sides so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to get to both of them um the first one is in regards to the gm so uh, you can talk about this in relation to epiphany or any other game that you've been gm for is, is the GM experience equally as transformational as the player experience? Or do they have to stay outside of that sort of transformational experience, if there's a way, so that they can better create a safe container for everybody else around them? Oh, that is such a, a difficult question. <laughs> I um, knew it would be. Good job, Woody. <laughs> no, I mean, it's it's difficult. But obviously, it depends on which game and which group and which person. And, all. you know, I mean, there's so many think variables. But... Um, I will say that at New World Magiscola, which is a LARP, also LARP versus tabletop, very different in terms of GM. Oftentimes, the GM isn't as active. Yeah. Um, but in we, a LARP, okay. We played in-game counselors, so we were school counselors in Whoa. inside of the game. New World Magiscola is a Harry Potter style college, um, so we were embedded within the game uh, as counselors, quote unquote. And some of us had a little bit of training here and there or were in school to become psychologists and others didn't where they were just volunteers right Mm -hmm. um and so we were embedded in the narrative and playing along with it and also uh were able to talk to to players and characters and like switch them out if need be if they were having a really intense you know bleed experience or if they were really confused about where to take their character or their you know whatever and then we would you know process with them and um, when we publicly wrote about this process people were extremely resistant to particularly the fact that we were embedded in the game 
Now we thought that was a positive thing because we knew what they were talking about. We were talking about just this with therapists, right? Like we knew if they said, okay, I was at the ritual down by the woods when the werewolf came out, we're like, oh yeah, I was there too, you know, <laughs> or I heard about that, you know, from so-and-so. Um, otherwise it's kind of hard to figure out like what dynamics are being described, right? Yeah. Um, and also just accessibility, like we'd be right there um, if they needed something. Um, so, but the idea was that if we're fictionally involved, then somehow that that um, you know contaminates us from being able to offer help, and also by calling ourselves counselors, we're misrepresenting our abilities, and people might think that they're actually getting psychological help. And, and there's a mm. huge, huge discussion around this. Um, and so, since I've been thinking about the idea of you know of trained therapists or professionals using uh, this as a therapeutic model. Uh, <laughs> that's come up again, right? Because it's like if you're sitting at a tabletop game and you're playing any NPC or even just describing the fictional world, you're part of that world. Like, you know, you're yeah. role playing in some way. Maybe you have more of a meta perspective, but there there is a degree of, of in-game immersion that's happening. So it, would that mean that everybody, you know, who's doing this is somehow compromised because they are playing a character within it, you know? And um, I don't know, it's a it's a really interesting question. Um, I would one of the things that 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 came up is not allowing the person who's embedded, if you're going to have an embedded person to be connected to any major plot. Of course, that's difficult, mm. too, if you're a GM, mm. right? You're the one who's yeah. conveying the plot. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, but like uh, in terms of a character like say playing an npc within a party that are all part of an adventure and you're attached to that npc making that npc as um uh maybe as passive as possible or it, not having that npc have a lot of investment again that that seems really uh difficult if you're playing basically every other character in the world like what if you're playing the the antagonist right mm -hmm. that is deeply invested in you losing this group for losing so um yeah uh, I, I don't I don't necessarily know the answer to your question I think that it questions of transference probably come up yeah uh, you yeah. know especially in, in terms of intimacy those are things that I would be thinking about um, just the, to what degree I mean an intimacy can take many forms play in and of itself can be a form of intimacy right but mm -hmm. but certainly in terms of playing romantic, uh, or, you know, sexual dynamics, um, it, it might prime the pump, so to speak, for those kinds of uh, bleed, really. Transformers yeah. is a form of bleed. Um, yeah, so I, I wish I had a more definitive answer for you. I think that it would. every person needs to just really kind of return to their code of ethics and 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 kind of keep that as their keep their purpose in mind because sometimes when we're playing we can easily kind of go off track and get wrapped up in the moment and and really kind of returning to that purpose like uh, i'm here and and you know gms are humans too right <laughs> they get emotionally yeah. swept up they get they get attached and so like what what does what does this professional training afford in terms of distance that might be able to 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 help aid in at least stepping back when necessary but is it always desirable to step back you know that I, I think even within therapy that's a question that people ask you know how close and how bonded do you want to become with your clients yeah um, and how how much intimacy is permitted so i don't 
Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't have a definitive answer. I just have a lot more questions. <laughs> and and I didn't have a definitive answer either. I didn't. I like it was just a question that occurred to me. I've recently been uh, running a game with some guys, and I I've recognized maybe something that writers have always realized which is the idea that when you invent a character, you bring a character out of the darkness and you present them in, in the game itself as a non-player character. You, There is a role that exists that you're suddenly channeling through, and, and that experience in and of itself has been, um, I'll say transformative, just in the sense of like seeing a creative aspect of myself. Or, you know, the game is for the purpose of playing the game. We want people to experience the game in a way that's going to be meaningful for them. I say we, I mean me, uh, <laughs> but I, the players do too. Um, so just realizing that there is something going on at my level as the, the sort of architect of the story, even in the midst while I'm trying to help the players to have an experience that is much different than my own. Um, so it's just been a question I've been playing with, like how, what level of what level of engagement am I, am I allowed to have? Or, you know, I can recognize that there are changes coming in me as a result of playing roles that I don't normally play, and yet I'm still holding the container of the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so questions of reflexivity, like am I, am I being reflexive? Am I reflecting on my role here come up when I hear you say that? Um, and also I'm, I'm thinking about going back to like these personal development workshops, right? Um, mm -hmm. where I've been either, you know, I have, I've had leaders that are undergoing some sort of transformative process or the staff members that kind of like middle management, if you will. Um, uh, we are all encouraged to process, even though there are some people that are more in charge of holding the container for others, we're all still experiencing it. And that is openly owned, you know, uh, rather than there are some of us who have figured everything out. And there are those of you who need answers and you've come to us for that reason, right? Like, <laughs> like making that tension, like clear, like, Hey, we're all growing right now. Yeah. And this is going to be an experience for all of us. Um, and so, and just being transparent about that and, and having some accountability even around it. Like, if, if, if the leader is feeling triggered, them noting that, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. It's definitely a different, a different approach than the standard therapeutic model. Definitely, yes. Woody recently had to play two NPCs speaking to each other and the experience has <laughs> changed him and he's still processing it. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> I think the most I've done is had to play three characters together, but it, it's, I, I don't want to be in that situation again. I had a scene once, this was online, but I was playing, I think we counted at one point like 30 NPCs in a week-long scene. <laughs> wow. It was it was really interesting, yeah. But for me, like, like I said, I have a fragmented psyche anyway, so that's not unusual for like different parts of myself to be interacting with each other. Um, just to have it be so obvious, <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of, yeah, unique situation. I'd like to hear tips on how to do that with LARPing, like how to be two people at the same time communicating with each other. We can talk about that later. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's completely gestalt going on right there. <laughs> I think a lot of people do it with costuming. Um, yeah, you know, and, and stance yeah. and posture and voice and stuff. That's how they 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 in their mind are able to distinguish. Yeah, um, I don't need all that really, but uh, <laughs> but but some people really do. Like they don't feel like they can be in character without that. Yeah, yeah. yeah they need the props to hold up the character that they're trying to create. I get that. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of embodiment when I'm playing a, a character or, 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 you know, playing a non-player character or even just a character in a game. There, there is embodiment that comes with the character that I play, whether or not it comes through the other people. I feel the changes in my in my physical structure when I'm doing it. So um, I, I think it's just a matter of allowing those roles to be present, and it's not always easy because sometimes those roles are so far from our normal way of seeing ourselves. Mm. It, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of channeling or aspecting in a, like a spiritual sense. Um, like how do we, or even like a medium, um, how do we create the, the circumstances for uh, something else to come through us? Uh, and what we define as that thing might change from community to community, um, but, but something else is coming through, whether it's like I have to wear these glasses in order for this character to, to their voice to come out, you know, or mm -hmm. it's like I literally feel like I'm a vessel for another entity, which is a very different kind of experience. Um, that's to me, all of that psychologically is very interesting, whether we want to acknowledge, yes, this exists or, or no, this is just a state. Um, it's still a state. It's still important. It's still interesting, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Ever since I was a teenager, I had difficulty with casual Fridays, <laughs> and I realized that this is kind of why. It's like, wait, 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 look, I can't be like I'm at school. I hate school. I can't be me at school. I'm gonna wear my uniform, or I'm at work. I'm like, no, I'm not gonna wear jeans and a t-shirt and be me at work because I'm at work and I'm not like free to be me at work. So I'm not even going to dress like me at work. I need to keep that uniform on whatever like you know and i'll make my own uniform um for work that makes me sad to hear <laughs> not not that you're bounding your experience i mean that sounds like you have a boundary and you know that that makes yeah. sense for you but just that that notion that we can't be ourselves where we are most of the time yeah you know? yeah i mean i've i've uh i've i've thankfully remedied that <laughs> with uh different uh um <laughs> Uh, employment experiences um, where I can be more myself and uh, combine that. But there's also, yeah, like that, that's what I was thinking about right now. My, my lines between play and like the real world are um, every day there's more and more overlap. Like I see more and more opportunities or I see, yeah, I love, I, I love exploring the idea of like, oh no, it's the real world, but I can play here. I can do that's something right. different. I can, I can experiment. I can practice something new that's a very freeing statement that it's not always easy to, for people to engage with, but I think it's an amazing idea. Wish I would have learned it earlier. Carve and, <laughs> and create yourself in the moment for, for, you know, for play. Yeah. And going back to transformational communities, like, um, you know, I often hear people using that language who aren't gamers. They're like, I'm playing the game of trying to be the perfect boyfriend these days. You know, <laughs> like they're they're larping their life and they're op openly talking about it. They they don't necessarily call it LARP, but they're like, yeah. Yeah. I want I'm playing a bigger game here. I want to play a game where anything is possible. You know, it's they are shifting their consciousness and using a game uh, metaphor, if you will, or a sense of playfulness uh, yeah. to to describe what they're doing, which is yeah. I think super interesting. Yeah. So it makes it sound like the metaphor of game is almost automatically a blurring of lines between reality and play. I I like that idea. I think a lot of people would be resistant to that idea, but yes. Um, yeah. You were about to say something, Sarah. Oh, I just wanted to know your other deep question. 
Oh, <laughs> this one uh, is maybe the hardest question I'll ask uh, because it's a question I'm asking myself right now. Given the state of unrest in the world right now, what can we create uh, as game creators or what can we do as, as uh, you know, how, how can we create something that, that makes an, a, a large-scale transformational change? Is that possible? Um, well, you know, Eirik Fatland, who is kind of... <laughs> He's kind of the godfather of Nordic LARP. Like he's been doing, and Nordic LARP is a, a community of avant-garde LARPers that are sort of at the forefront of theory and of, of practice, doing very experimental social uh, experiments, basically, uh, in the Nordic countries and, and other places. But uh, Eirik recently talked about this, and he the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, um, I think that where change really does happen is individually and in community. So, um, is there a game that will change the world? Probably not, but is the practice of play something that we can learn things from that can help us change ourselves and change the world around us? Definitely. And so I think like stepping away from this idea of wow we ran this intensely political larp and we were hoping that people would walk away from it caring about prison reform and that we didn't mm -hmm. see that actual thing happening so clearly this wasn't a transformational larp like i think that might be the wrong way to think about it i'd be more interested to to see how people have taken that experience and how it affects their daily life if at all you know like um, for those of us who work in education or in the government, like how do the things that we've experienced within those games, how do they impact the way we view our jobs and what we advocate for? You know, so there's there's ways that change happens that that's that's more quiet and less loud than we think. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this in terms of the pandemic and um, and the, the protests as well, um, because there's this LARP that I've often on played, but I know many people have played for probably maybe 10 to 12 years now called Dystopia Rising, which is a zombie apocalypse LARP. And so mm -hmm. every every month they would go to the woods and, you know, uh, some of it's quote unquote fun, but a lot of it is horror. So it's a very intense, cathartic experience. It's community building. A lot of them are walking around wearing masks. And this was all before any of this happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I've often wondered, like, what do we take away from those experiences, you know? Um, and uh, I'm, I'm very curious. I would love to see a conversation for people who've played DR for long periods of time about what, how they're, if they feel like they're more prepared now in some way, you know, or, or if, or not, you know, like, um, and the, the, the practice, I mean, just thinking about this, we were talking earlier about like having a hole in your life where something would have gone if you spent every weekend of your life playing the zombie apocalypse, apocalypse game for a year, let's say, or two years or 10 years, and you took that out, what would you have been doing otherwise? And what were you doing within that setting? Uh, what was it training you for, let's say, or, or what were you practicing or what were you learning about yourself or what were you exploring? I mean, for me, I was really stepping into my priestess when I was playing that, that LARP. Um, and I was doing it in this sort of ironic way. I was playing a character that, you know, 
believed that RuPaul was the Messiah and that drag would save the world. And, you know, I mean, it was in, in a way it was kind of silly, but it was also um, she was deeply serious about it. And she believed mm -hmm. this so fervently and, and being able to access within myself like the sense of the whole world is falling apart, but I still have faith. That was really powerful and profound, you know, even yeah. stepping away from the trappings of it. It's just looking at the fact that no matter what happened, she had something in her that was so strong and, and, and that helped her cope and helped her bring healing to others. And that means I must have that in myself too. And so that's something I've been exploring in other LARPs, um, playing healer type characters. And, and in terms of altered states, um, I played a, a character who uh, is involved in Neo-Tantra and like, uh, I really didn't have that much experience with it at the time. I've played this character three times at this point uh, in a LARP called Just a Little Eleven, which is a LARP about the AIDS crisis in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I first played this character, uh, she felt very different from me, but because I'd kind of been playing these healer characters that had faith, I was, it was easy to slip in. And because it was more of a quote unquote real world, you know, uh, setting, it felt more real to me what I was experiencing and embodying, you know, which is really just presence if you think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and when I broke character, um, speaking of integration, I, I had a, like a mental collapse because I, I, I felt my daily anxieties start to come in that I had been spared from while being in play for this amount of hours or this amount of days. We do break character in that, in that LARP for debriefing uh, every day. But, um, and so I used that as a, as a, a starting point. I'm like, okay, I know I can get to this peaceful place. I've done it before. What can I do in my daily life that will help me get more there? And that's when I started kind of doing these different transformational modalities. And um, then the next time I played her, it felt more seamless. And the next time I played her, it felt even more seamless. And now really there isn't a lot of distinction between me and her other than, you know, perhaps some ways in which we're choosing to live our lives um, and the time period and, you know, logistical things. But energetically, I don't feel a strong difference. Wow. That's the true meaning of a transformational game. It, that is a, an amazing story. But the game itself only is a potential space, right? Like if you're right. setting up a space for potential, it's like saying somebody going to therapy, that doesn't ensure that they're going to have a, a transformation. You're just, you're, you're setting the container and you're basically hoping that they'll step into it in some way. And, and it's, it's unclear what that's going to look like. You know, so I, I just want to be careful about thinking about things as like, automatically transformational or automatically sure. going to create this. Some people will create these, these intense experiences. Um, I was mentioning prison LARPs earlier because there's this one called Capo uh, that was in Denmark that was this, you know, basically prisoner on prisoner violence kind of LARP. Um, I, I want to say it was 2012 when they ran that. Um, and it's considered this hardcore, intense, you know, transformational uh, Experience. I don't know if they would use the word transformational, but definitely right. trying to encourage some sort of strong reaction in the player, you know. Um, and um, I, I would be hanging out with people talking about that LARP, and I'm like, "Oh, you played Capo, you know? Oh my gosh!" And 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 I had this one girl. She was like, "Meh," <laughs> you know. And I was like, "What?" 
And then she, when I was telling her about this zombie apocalypse larp that I'm playing, she goes, oh, I could never do that. I'm like, you played Capo and you can't play the zombie. She's like, I'm terrified of zombies. I'm like, okay. So, you know, everybody's different <laughs> and you, you can't predict these things. But also you mentioned that, you know, you did it multiple times and it became easier over time. And that's a big part of therapy too. You don't come to therapy and you're just, you're fixed. You're given tools and the opportunity to, to, to practice and it's in the practice and the doing that it gets easier over time. I've, I've been having conversations here with um, people who like, I live in Chicago and you know, like it, it looked like a disaster area after some of the protests and there was a lot of fear and like, I've, you know, I, I'm saying this here in this context, I haven't said this to anybody in private, but I'm thinking like, Oh yeah, no, like, I've lived through like multiple hurricanes and like actual like crazy disasters where everything was completely destroyed. So this doesn't phase me as much, but I understand why that is. It's because I've unfortunately had that practice. Mm. And, and so, you know, over time those experiences can, can transform you. But I agree that like one, one off isn't, uh, isn't guaranteed to make a difference. Well, it, it certainly can. Um, and, 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 and of course, one off is it, are we talking about four days of straight play? Cause that's a lot of immersion, right? Yeah. Um, even, even a one hour experience, I've seen LARPs that were transformational that were 20 minutes long about gang rape or not, gang rape is one of them. Mm -hmm. But the one I'm thinking about is about, is called the gray zone. Uh, people playing parts of the psyche of a woman who's been, you know, non-consensually raped by her boyfriend and isn't quite sure what happened. And, and those different parts are arguing with each other. And that had an incredibly profound, Siri Sondquist is the person who designed this game, a profound, uh, you know, we weren't in costume or anything. We were just on my living room floor, but that was a very powerful experience for people that were playing there. And the debrief after was very intense. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to say campaign games are better or playing something more often is better. I do think, though, the act of uh, trusting, the act of stepping into a container, the act of, of allowing yourself to, to be open to new experiences and to adapting to those things as you experience them, yeah, there are, there are transformations that can happen from that. And so the more that we exercise that part of ourselves, the more adaptable we're likely to become and the more we may feel that we have agency in the world around us. Um, but another thing to consider is that transformations aren't always positive, right? Right. What, like, what are we transforming? What are we, what are we learning about the world? Like, you know, um, I'm teaching this peace and conflict studies class right now, and I'm, I'm hoping that my students at, at the end of it get the sense that, oh, there are peaceful ways to, to solve conflict. And I feel really inspired. <laughs> A lot of my students were saying, oh, no, nah, violence is inevitable. I'm <laughs> just like, okay, well, <laughs> that's what they got of the, about, you know, after, after reviewing the history of humanity for the last few months, that's what they got took from it. I mean, if we want to talk about the dark side of LARPing as a social experiment, there was the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah. You know, one week worth of people acting as guards and prisoners and how far it degenerated and how much people immerse themselves into the role so much that you, they learn a lot more about themselves than they thought they would. I mean, the LARP is, has terrible safety design for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, it's more about, it's more about coulda, not about shoulda. <laughs> I mean, I, I, 
what I've gathered from reading similar kinds of blurbs, I was talking about Capo, uh, which had yeah. a documentation book, has a documentation book attached to it where people describe what their experiences were like in and out of character. And I, I just devoured that when I first got it because I was so fascinated by it. Like, what would it be like? Because I don't think I could put myself in that situation, but I'm very curious as to what happens for people psychologically in it. And yeah, people find places in themselves that they did not know were there that scare them um, and that it create may create a, a feeling of fragmentation. Um, for example, the NPCs that were playing the prison guards, because in that LARP, everybody gets executed at some point. You just don't know when. You know you're going. it's going to happen. You just don't know when. But somebody has to be playing that role, right? <laughs> so, you know, the one of the reflections from one of the people playing those NPCs is how easy it became after a certain point. And these are extremely left-leaning, anarchist, you know, very, very pro-human rights players that are finding places in their own mind that scare them. And what does that reveal to us about what might happen for people who are in those kinds of situations and are in extraordinary circumstances and what they might do? And it could go, it could go lots of different ways. You know, they might show up as uh, in that role that this person's serving a function. So his character really doesn't have agency in the same way that we might think. But, you know, somebody might find strength within themselves they didn't know was there. Um, yeah, you were talking about night earlier, and I, that makes me think a lot about that. Yeah, that was that was a very powerful book. And we found out a lot of the kids had read it, it previous to the. 10th grade, they read it in middle school, and they said we were not prepared for it in middle school. And I <clears throat> thought that was maybe a little harsh a book to read in middle school. Yeah. Um, but in 10th grade, they said they actually kind of understood the book and um, were actually kind of getting a lot more from it than they did in middle school. That is a night by um, Ellie Wiesel is one of the more deep and impactful books I've read. Well, I think we're often confronted with things that we can't handle in life. And I'm not saying that we should, you know, force people into situations outside of their comfort zone all the time. But um, that growing edge space, the space where they're actually opting into something, which I don't honestly, as an educator, I always wonder how much consent is actually possible in the classroom. Uh, mm -hmm. But but, you know, in terms of what we're talking about, but like, in playful spaces, maybe we can be a little bit more conscientious about that. I mean, there's still social structures and power and all of that are still at play. But are there ways that we can encourage people to step as far into out of their comfort zone as they feel comfortable, basically into that growing edge space without getting to the point where they feel triggered or they feel shut down or they feel unsafe? You know, um, that's that's where a lot of the growth happens. And as you know, that's a that's a difficult place to 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 work in. And, um, you know, one perspective that I've heard around, like, when should we expose people to things like the Holocaust or slavery or the realities of, of this world, you know, um, is that they're already aware <laughs> on some level. They've already been mm -hmm. exposed to to so much, even at a young age, even at five years old, say, uh, that we, we don't realize. So, um, I I think that being able to have meaningful conversations and to to connect with other humans 
like through literature is a really great example, but also like through enacting a character, what does it mean to play someone who might have gone through a certain set of circumstances? We can't know what it was like for people during that time. We just can't. And we can't know because we're playing, so we have a chance to opt out. So it's not even like we're in that position. Right. But we can maybe get some insight into some of the, the states they might have experienced or hopefully at least get some awareness and empathy for what others might be going through. Yeah, it's the same kind of situation with A Long Way Gone by Ishmael Bea. They read that one and they just said they couldn't imagine. At the very beginning, they thought, oh, man, at like 12 years old, picking up a gun and going into war. I said, yeah, get, wait till you read the book. <laughs> Near the end of the book, they were like, I don't know what I would do if I were put in that situation. Because he was forced to make some really horrible decisions. And seeing how it, how it, you know, getting that feeling of how it impacted him in, so, in, in later life was, was really deep for them too. I wanted to circle back to something Woody had said mm -hmm. around that, um, around playing violent characters. Um, I think that when we conflate role-playing with fun, for example, oftentimes violence becomes a form of fun and people mm -hmm. aren't having the kinds of experiences that Brian's describing, right? They're, they're thinking it's just a game or these aren't real people. These are NPCs or, you know, and so, yeah. uh, you know, this is just strategy. Um, what I'd be super interested in games that treat violence in the way that Brian's describing, where it's like, this is a situation that is horrific. This is a situation that, that brings out the worst in people. And how do I personal re personally relate to that experience? And then having that reflection afterwards, that through debriefing or, or journaling or whatever, one-on-one -on -one sessions or whatever it takes to, to actually pull that out of people. And instead of just having alibi kick in and, oh, that wasn't me, that was the character, it didn't mean anything, let's just move on, you know? Um, so yeah, uh, I, I, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of violence enacted in games. Well, we've gotten so far down the rabbit hole, I don't know how to get out now. Uh, <laughs> do we need to get out? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, we do need to, to bring it to an end, but you know, uh, one of the things you're talking about that I think is really important is integration, and I don't think a lot of gaming right now includes that integration process, that debrief and that middle brief, the breaks and and the knockout of character for a moment to to discuss what things are like in character. Uh, that I, I can't highlight that enough in terms of my own experience with gaming has been that if I have that debrief time, if I have the integration time, that's where I get this possibility of, of ha having a game be personally transformational as opposed to just being an uncomfortable experience at the table or in the case of a LARP, an, an uncomfortable experience in the woods. Uh, <laughs> um, so you had talked about the idea of it doesn't just happen on its own, and I don't think it happens on its own. And I wouldn't suggest to anyone that you just go into a game thinking, yeah, I'm going to get a transformational experience out of it. I think it requires a really safe container with really good people that know what they're doing and also a willingness and a... Uh, dedication on your part 
to 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 embrace the things that you might experience as opposed to looking at it from that alibi perspective where it's like that's not me i don't have to worry about that uh, recognizing that that is me that's that's all me everything here is me <laughs> back to a solipsistic reality um I think solipsism is like kind of, at least I view it more like narcissism, you know, like um, yeah. I am the center of the world. But I, when, when I think, when I hear you talking about that, I think of non-dualism, which is like the transpersonal, right? Like my yeah. ego is just a small part of a much larger, vast experience of consciousness. And that, that I think has a lot of value. Um, but uh, in terms of integration, um, uh, we're bumping up against taboo in a way. Uh, like I mentioned, there's you know potential stigma of feeling like, oh, you went to a LARP and now you're changing your style, you're le leaving your partner, or you're you know what's happening, or you know, mm -hmm. and people will have those kinds of life transformations. Um, you know, uh, I think that one of the major things that I see happening is well, first of all, uh, an example would be romantic bleed. You know, having romantic feelings or sexual feelings for people that one has played closely with uh, outside of the LARP and, and then not having a framework to discuss that or or even to know if the other person is feeling the same thing or <laughs> because it all happened and under alibi, under play, right? Mm -hmm. And then trying to work through, do I communicate with this person? Do I talk this through? Do I try to bring this dynamic into our actual life? Or I shouldn't say actual lives because I do think play is part of life, but into our daily lives. Um, what if they already are with someone and that's not allowed? Like what what kind of conversation can we have? Like is intimacy expected to continue in some way, whether it's close friendship or whatever? And um, that that's a pretty common and taboo kind of situation. Um, and then also what we call LARP drop. So if somebody has, you know, very intense connective experience, very a lot of catharsis, a lot of uh, you know, feelings of connectedness to the community, and then they go home and they're back in their lives and they feel empty and they, you know, oftentimes will crash. And this happens from conventions, it happens from all sorts of, you know, uh, festivals and things like that. But I think it's especially alienating when the person that you were and the fiction that you were inhabiting no longer exists. And it can feel almost like you're gaslighting yourself, right? Like, mm. well, what was that? Was that anything? And, you know, how can I possibly have anything as close to that in my life? And so I've been really interested in addressing that, you know, like, how do we take these things that we've learned and, and make it and normalize it for us to talk about them with other people, normalize it us to talk about uh, transformative experiences like I love the idea of people at PAX Unplugged all talking about that that's amazing which is that makes me so happy um, and and um, and really figuring out like what did I learn from that like maybe it's not the character or the fiction that I actually need maybe it's the experience of having felt faith for the first time in my life you know and how yeah. can I have more of that in my daily life and there's all sorts of processes. You can create community, you can create art, you can create more games, you can journal, you can debrief, you can intellectualize, you can do research. There's all sorts of integration activities out there. Um, but, you know, I think like in order to kind of complete, I don't know if transformation is ever complete, but continue, let's say, the transformation process, some sort of integration, 
uh, meaningful and, and intentional integration uh, is helpful. Um, some people integrate through like war stories, for example. You know, oh, mm -hmm. it was so cool when we fought the dragon and you said this funny thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's certainly a form of integration. But it often minimizes the intensity and turns it into something amusing or exciting, which is which is okay. It's a reframing, but it doesn't leave room for some of these deeper conversations, right? Um, it, it often is is a, a, a form of distancing, I would say, or a form of nostalgia. Um, so instead, like th thinking about the ways that we tell the stories afterwards, how are we narrativizing ourselves, and where am I in the narrative? Where is the player in the narrative? Um, what am I learning about myself? What, and, and that might be ongoing, you know, people writing things down and then realizing uh, moving forward a year down the line, two years down the line, oh, I found that thing. I found the thing there. That makes everything make sense. It was unlocked for me. I just wasn't ready to fully understand it, you know? So returning to some of these powerful experiences and thinking about them. I just wanted to do a shout out to Janea Kemper, uh, who just published a really great article on nordiclarp.org called Weirding the Self. And she is an autoethnographer. So she actually intentionally goes in to have these sort of emancipatory bleed experiences we were talking about to, to, um, to break out of her marginalized identity and to, to experience some sort of a shift. And she assiduously journals. And in this article, if you Google it, she'll, it, she assiduously journals before, during, and after the experience to stay on focus for that purpose of what, what her goals are, what happened, what sort of, you know, observations does she have? So she's kind of, you know, extending that dual consciousness to be like very reflective throughout the whole process. And so I, I thought that was a really concrete way to describe uh, integration because it's like an ongoing process and something that she's, she's doing very intentionally. And that can be found on Nord nordiclarp.com, is that right? Dot org. Yeah. Dot org, okay. Yeah. Dot org. So, uh, Weirding the Self by Janeta Kemper. Uh, that'll be the next article I look at. <laughs> <laughs> it's based on her master's thesis uh, at NYU. So, it's, it's a really great condensed version. Well, Sarah, you've given us a ton to think about, and uh, I feel like I could probably pick your brain forever because you've had all these amazing experiences and uh, I, I would love to talk to you more. Um, for the purposes of this podcast, though, we need to end. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to thank everybody so much. This has been a very enlightening conversation for me. And uh, if, if anything, I'm just more strengthened in my own principles and ideas uh, as a result of this discussion. So I, I really appreciate your time, Sarah. You're absolutely welcome. And this is a transform transformational community in and of itself. I mean, we're we're holding space for for this purpose. And and thank you for holding that space. Thank you. Um, just so that people can find you, it's SarahLynnBowman.com. Yes. Okay. And uh, is there any other contact link you would like to offer? That's the best way to get a hold of me, I think. Um, okay. That's, um, yeah, the majority of my work is, is linked there, at least the stuff that's publicly accessible. 
and not acceptable. acceptable. That's a that's a Freudian slip. I don't, I don't nice know Freudian how, slip. I don't know how acceptable it is, but. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, and for the rest of you out there, keep on rolling for change. Hey, you out there in the coronal wastes, you've been listening to Rolling for Change, a proud member of the Geek Therapy Network. We know that the world has embarked upon the largest game of Pandemic the LARP, but if you're lonely, looking for a community of like-minded geeky revolutionaries, and want to chat about all of the amazing media our universe has to offer, please join us on our Discord at geektherapy.com forward slash Discord. If you like our theme music, and you just want to take a headphone trip into the deep hypnotic horizon, be sure to check out Rocket Scientists over at bandcamp.com forward slash rocket scientists. If you'd like to connect with us, we are gamers at rollingforchange.com. We may be locked down, but we can still connect in a number of places, and we would love to hear from you. Until we meet again, stay safe, wear a mask, get into good trouble, and keep on rolling for change. <laughs>